No? <clears throat> Let's try this again. This here is an interesting passage, no? Yes. Correct answer is yes. It's a rhetorical. Anyway, don't worry about it. All right. So this is fascinating. So this is an absolutely classic passage, right? It's, it's core to the whole Christian and Jewish tradition. And it's really, really, really rich and interesting and multifaceted. And probably the reason why it, people keep coming back to it is because nobody like it means. And so this morning, I'm going to tell you what it means. What can I say? I have a big head. So, um, <laughs> all right, so remind ourselves where we are in the story. So this is Exodus. So Jews became slaves in Egypt, and then little baby Moses was rescued from, you know, the basket in the water, and then grew up in Pharaoh's house, and then, and then uh, Moses was saved from being killed, yes, and all that, and he killed the slave master and then ran away because of it, and then now he's with his father-in-law in the desert, wandering around, and he sees a burning bush. Right? Familiar? Y'all, come on. Come on. Seriously. Fraction of what this passage has in it. It is so rich. It, it like could easily be a long sermon series. Could do that. But as of right now, I'm not planning on it. But anyway, Moses sees this burning bush that is burning but not consumed and out of that bush he, so we went up to investigate what intonation was going on and in that moment he encountered the divine and the voice of God said you all know the story go to Pharaoh tell him to let my people go and Moses is like nah I'm good and God's like eh you can do it anyway and so Moses responds to God. At the end of that passage we read, you know, there's all these Egyptian gods out there, right? We're in Egypt. There's a lot of gods. If I just go to them and say, hey, God told you that we should go out, they won't know who I'm talking about. So, what's your name? Innocent enough question, no? I mean, it's, it's obvious that he's trying to get out of the responsibility. I mean, that's... That's plain, right? But, but, you know, it doesn't sound like that big of a question. What's your name? No big deal. But God replies, I am who I am. And bam, smacks him down. Moses is trying to wriggle out of it. And God's like, nope, locked. However, our goal today is to figure out, wait, what's just went on here? <laughs> it's obvious that God won. It's obvious that Moses, Moses was trying to wriggle out of it and God was like, deal with it. But what the heck just happened? So that's our goal today. Try and figure out what is even going on in this story. What is the big deal about God and God's name? So, as with all good things, we must start somewhere entirely different. So, think with me about names for a minute. 
as Shakespeare famously said, you all know, you know this, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, right? And Shakespeare completely missed the point. What can I say? I, I said I have a big head. I'm taking on Shakespeare too now. Um, so, right, so I mean, sure, he's correct in his context and stuff, right? So, I mean, Juliet's talking about, oh, you know, last names and family names shouldn't separate us from being in relationship with other. Great, wonderful. But Shakespeare's wrong in terms of the bigger context, right? Because he's not really talking about roses, is he? Right? He's talking about names. And in contrast to how most of the cultures of the world think about names... Shakespeare actually is pretty reflective of the Western culture he comes out of, this sense that labels are just interchangeable, right? It's, they're just signs to be placed on an object to identify it, and that's, that's it, right? And so if this, this rock, right, I, it does In another language, it's called quinquin. I don't know. But it's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't communicate anything besides just being a label. That's what... That's kind of in the vein of what Western culture has been saying and kind of the implications of what Shakespeare's saying, but that's not right. Because think about this. Think about the countless hours that expectant parents spend poring over baby name books. Because, because right, if the child, if you had a child and you named it Daughter One. Like, that's the whole name. Like, Daughter One Cushman. That's not just a label, right? That, that communicates something, right? That, that's, it says something about the parents and their thought process and their relationship with the daughter and all sorts of these things, right? There's this whole bundle of meaning wrapped up in that one name. And we've lost that sense in some of our Western cultures, and so in what anthropologists pretty awkwardly call more traditional societies, the name itself often has power. And so meaning, knowing somebody's name, for example, is somehow an inroads into their identity. And so, in, for example, in various Native American cultures, you receive new names as you go on through your life. Because as you change and your being and your identity changes, of course, your name changes to reflect that. And, and, and in the ancient world, especially the biblical world, that it's so important. Names are just not just labels. They're not just interchangeable. They say something about a person, about who they will be, about the relationship to others and society and to God. And so you have these biblical figures who give their children insane names, like Maharshalal Hashabaz. He has made haste to be to uh, he has made haste to the plunder. Or Lo Ami, not my people. Can you imagine uh, beyond just being a weird name? Can you imagine being saddled with that for the rest of your life? Hey, not my people, how are you doing? It's good to see you. It, right? That's so weird. But, and it would really suck. But that is such a big thing in the Bible of names, our identity. Or think about all these stories in the Bible at so many of the turning points in the plot. We have 
a change of name. And so Abram is called by God and becomes Abraham. And Jacob encounters God and becomes Israel. And Saul encounters the risen Christ and becomes Paul. And it's not just the name change. It's not just, I like this name better. It's something more significant. It's a highly significant act. It's something saying something about their core of their being and about their relationship to God. So now, zoom out with me yet further. One more order of magnitude out. When scholars describe ancient religions, they describe a lot of them as magical. So now, we're not talking about Harry Potter. We're talking about something different, right? Uh, But so here's the thing. So scholars have a lot of trouble kind of distinguishing between magic and religion. But here's the best that they've kind of come up with is religion's more about kind of a relationship, like obedience or, you know, something in that vein. Uh, It's about actions. It's this dynamic thing. Whereas magic is more like a formula. And so, for example... From our idea of magic, if I say abracadabra and do the right actions, then this will happen. It's formulaic, right? It's, it's almost pre-scientific in the ancient world. If, if I do A and all the conditions and variables are right, then B happens, right? It's, it's very straightforward. It's very formulaic. And so when scholars describe a lot of these ancient religions... They classify them as magical, meaning they're focused around doing one action to produce a certain effect. And so if I have my household altar and I sacrifice the right thing on it and do everything right, then I will have a better crop. And if my crops didn't grow better, then I must have done something wrong in the setup because... If you do A, you get B. And so this way of processing the world, my fate, my luck, are ultimately in my control, right? My harvest bounty, my control over these things that were before fundamentally outside of my control, now, in this way of thinking, I can control. And so I have some say in, for example, whether or not I harvest enough stuff to not starve to death. And so you can see the appeal, right, of by doing the sacrifices, the right sacrifices correctly. We come up with this. And what is one of the key things to make sure that you get it correct is make sure you get the God's name right. Because... Because, yeah, we we can't just send up sacrifice and be like, it's a free-for-all. Whoever wants it, grab it, right? You have to to address the letter, right? You have to be like, so say, I'm going to send this sacrifice to Tiamat, let's say. And because of that, oh, she's like, oh, I love it. Here you go. Here's nice crops, right? And so if you know the God's name, then you can produce the results those magical results predictably, which, if you extend it logically, if you know the God's name, you can control them. 
There's a fascinating story in Egyptian mythology. We're just going all around the world here. If in Egyptian mythology, the goddess Isis learns the real true name of the sun god Ra. And because of that, she gains complete control over him and, gets, and kicks him off the throne to put her son Horus there instead. Right? If you know a god's true name, you can control that god because their name, right, is their being. It's their identity. It's, it's if you know who it is in that name, then you can put it You can use it to further your own ends. Be that putting your son on the throne or be that getting good enough of a harvest that you don't die. So, now come on back with me to the Exodus. Yeah, y'all forgot where we started, didn't you? Okay, so come back with me to the Exodus. Moses asked God, what is your name? If in the ancient world, knowing a god's name meant that you could control that god, what does it mean if that god refuses to give you their name? Yeah. And so Moses doesn't really want to go back to Pharaoh and, you know, be in danger and all that jazz. So Moses is like, give me your name. And he expects that there's a God is like all the rest of them. Once he knows his name, he can control him. And God doesn't play like that. Because this God is fundamentally not under our control. This God is not domesticated or domesticatable. This is a God with God's own agency and sovereignty you don't get to tell this God what to do. And then take a look at that name itself, that non-name that God gives Moses. Because it's really hard to translate, and we haven't really figured out a great way to do it yet, but old translations tend to say, I am. Newer translations tend to go somewhere in the vein of, I am who I am. But either way, it's not an answer. God's not given Moses God's name. Because in the traditional rendering, as well as potentially in the Hebrew, this name is not even a noun. This name is a verb. God can't even be pinned down by nounness. God can't even be put into a box of a person, place, thing, or idea. It's, that's too, contra- that's too um, constricting for this dynamic, ever-changing, uncontrollable God that breaks through the boundaries and can't be pinned down to this noun. The noun isn't alive enough and dynamic enough for this uncontrollable God. And so, I am... A verb. And so just think about the ways in which even us as moderns supposedly evolved past this magical superstition, superstition stuff, right? 
we still think that God's under our control. So, for example, right? Only Christians go to heaven. Okay. So, you take a particular interpretation of the Bible, and you give it to God and say, here's your script. Make sure not to improv. Don't mess up. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Trying to put God under our control a little bit. And some of you folks know about the phenomenon of the prosperity gospel, this idea that if you give Jesus enough of your wealth, then you will receive back time and time again. It'll be a seed and it'll sprout and you'll just receive back and God wants you to be rich and wealthy and and all this stuff. And if you don't do it, then you must be doing it wrong. Does this sound somewhat familiar to anybody? Magic much? Or maybe just a formula? If you say the sinner's prayer, then you will be saved. It's neat. It's tidy. It's clean, not ambiguous. Right? But does that not sound more like the God whose name you can know, who with the right sacrifices you can guarantee a good harvest? I'm not sure how much that lines up with the God that is a verb, not a noun. The God that cannot be pinned down by a name, that cannot be manipulated to control, to do our bidding. The God who refuses to give Moses God's own name and yet demands obedience. The deeply unsettling God that we encounter throughout the Bible. So, as you continue to move deeper in your relationship with the divine. May you eschew easy answers. The alluring temptation to try and control some magical God. But instead, draw into an ever-deepening relationship with the dynamic unbound, uncontrollable, unnameable mystery that is the God we worship. May it be so.